Welcome to Authors on Tour Live, a weekly podcast for people who love to hear about books from the authors themselves. My name is Darren Fote, and today we are podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore, one of the premier independent bookstores in the nation, with three locations in the metro Denver area. You can visit www.authorsontourlive.com for a complete list of upcoming podcasts. Wait a minute, it's time to begin. Thank you for coming out to Tattered Cover. My name is Len. I'm the incoming owner of Tattered Cover Bookstores, and we have a lot of events in, 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 at all of our stores all the time, and when I saw that Steve was on the list, I specifically said, I want to come and host this event, because I had read one of Steve's, who's written several books, one of Steve's previous books called Appetite for Self-Destruction, which was about the sort of the downfall of the, the music labels and the rise of digital music, and it was one of the best written, best research books on the music industry. And Steve now, has, who is a contributing editor for Rolling Stone, has taken that considerable talent and turned it to one of America's, maybe America's greatest pop icon, um, Michael Jackson. So here to talk about the genius of Michael Jackson and to sign books afterwards is Steve Knopper. Thanks. Wow. Thank you very much, Len, for the kind words. That, that's really, really nice to hear. Very gratifying. Um, and thank you all for coming. Thanks to Tatter Cover for, for having me. Um, this is actually my third signing at Tatter Cover. The previous one, as Len mentioned, was for my last book, Appetite for Self-Destruction. The one before that was uh, The Complete Idiot's Guide to Starting a Band. Um, and my fellow complete idiot, Mark Bleisner, is here in the audience tonight. So, so thank you so much for coming. Um, I, uh, I guess I'll start. I'm going to do a little bit of a reading, and then I have a few remarks about uh, Michael Jackson, and then I'll just ask, take questions and then do the signing. Um, so I'll introduce the reading. Um, let's see. This is a scene from the famous Motown 25 episode in 1983, and the, the setting is that you know Motown's days of superstardom, you know, the great 60s music and all the big, big hits had kind of passed by this point. Um, but Barry Gordy, the, the head of Motown, was reuniting all his old stars, um, the Temptations, the Supremes, Marvin Gaye, some of whom had been feuding pretty aggressively. Um, and of course, the Jackson 5 were, were on the bill. And so the, the Jackson 5, for their performance, all, all the brothers, you know, all, all the Jackson brothers, um, including Jermaine, who had stayed behind in Motown when, when the Jacksons had moved on to, to a new record label, um, they were reuniting. And it was a very emotional performance. Um, and they did their, their oldies. They did, you know, I'll Be There and I Want You Back and, and uh, The Love You Save and all those great, great songs. And they did. It was really good. Like if you guys are – if you haven't already, I would – I would definitely encourage you to, to look at this on YouTube. Um, and, and it was just a, a great kind of nostalgia type, type performance. And they all, afterwards, they all kind of bounded off. And then Michael comes on. And Michael, of course, was part of the performance. And Michael's wearing his black satin jacket borrowed from his mother. And he's wearing his, his black loafers and his tall pants and his white socks, which was a trick borrowed from Fred Astaire because um, you have to be able to see the dancer's feet on the stage. Um, and Michael comes out and he gives a speech and he's kind of sweaty from the previous performance. And he says, Oh, I love those old songs. You know, those songs are great. I love being with my brothers, etc., etc." Nice, nice platitudes. And then he says, but especially I love the new songs. He looks right into the audience when he says that. And that's where my chapter picks up from the reading I'm going to do. 
Music history remembers this speech the way it remembers the throwaway, the throwaway lines Elvis Presley in the studio with his band delivered in 1954. After halting the bluegrass ballad Milk Cow Blues Boogie, Elvis declared, Hold it, fellas. That don't move me. Let's get real, real gone for a change. The resulting fast-paced version of Milk Cow wasn't technically the birth of rock and roll, but listening today, it feels like it. The moment echoed Benny Goodman on stage in 1935 at Hollywood's Palomar Ballroom, initially leading his orchestra in super slow dinner party music. When nobody paid attention, he reversed course with Fletcher Henderson's jumping arrangement for King Porter Stomp. A dance floor riot ensued and the big band swing era was born. Michael reaches down for his black fedora, which resembles the bowler Bob Fosse wore in The Little Prince. His longtime assistant, Nelson P. Hayes, had placed it there while the camera had been focused elsewhere. He must have made me rehearse that spot 20 times just to make sure that hat was going to be there where it was supposed to be, Hayes recalls. It's dawning on the old Motown pros gathered at the auditorium just how meticulously Michael had choreographed this moment. Drums. Bum bap, bum bap, bum bap. Michael twirls to the left. He's posing, hat upside down in his right hand. He plops the hat on his head. Bass. Michael thrusts his crotch forward again and again, then kicks his right leg so it's almost horizontal. For the next six seconds, his movements are so quick and fluid and connected that it's almost impossible to deconstruct and identify them. Michael splays his legs. He does more kicks. He holds a pose, then another in the reverse direction. He waves his hat to the right, but it's a basketball head fake, and instead he tosses it off stage to the, le- to the left. He claps. He, tans- he tap dances, glides a little, synths, two more thrusts of the crotch, then a hair combing motion, the suggestion of a rockabilly greaser. At this time, Fred, and- Fred Astaire and Gene Kelly are old men, and the bandwagon and singing in the rain seem hopelessly out of fashion in the rock era. Michael is bringing them back. The elegance, the dance tricks that seem like magic. Michael concentrates their moves into tantalizing bursts. As Michael mouths the first line of Billie Jean, she was more like a beauty queen. His feet are unable to stop, bouncing left and right. Finally, he settles down, eyes closed, concentrating into the microphone, tapping his left foot to the beat. He punctuates certain lines. She caused a scene with high kicks, nearly parallel to the floor. Every moment is more intriguing than the next. He plants his foot to spin in a tight circle like he did with the Jackson 5, then holds his fists to his face as if pleading, like James Brown, before hiking up his pants to display his white socks. For a moment, the camera catches a glimpse of the audience, unusually racially diverse for a concert hall in 1983, blacks and whites clapping together in tuxedos and gowns. The Billie Jean guitar solo arrives and recedes. Finally, as Michael executes the moonwalk formerly known as the Backslide, formerly a dance belonging to the Electric Boogaloos, Cab Calloway, James Brown, Demita Joe Freeman, Casper and Cooley, Jeffrey Daniel, Mr. Bojangles, Bob Fosse, Marcel Marceau, and Shields and Yarnell. A sort of screech erupts from the crowd. During rehearsals, he never did that. Only when he did the show, recalls Russ Tarana, who, as Motown's veteran chief recording engineer, was outside in the soundtrack, taping Motown 25 for posterity. My crew just went... What the hell was that? You could hear the audience going, Awa. So that's, that's the section that I wanted to read. And um, just a few remarks. Uh, a question that I've, I've worked on this book for three years, and you, you may have heard I've, I've interviewed more than 400 people, actually more than 450 if you count sort of all the cultural critics and so forth that I talked to. Um, and a question that I was asked more than once during the process is, 
why in the world does anyone need another book about Michael Jackson? There's a lot of them. And the short answer is because I'm a Michael Jackson fan, and this is the book that I wanted to read about him. There have been a lot of books about Michael Jackson, um, a lot of really good books. And a lot of them, they're either sort of on the music side, and they're not really narrative books. They're usually formatted like album guides or sort of this is what you should buy. Um, and then there's tell-alls, and then there's sort of like like definitive biographies that are written by people. But the tone of those te- those biographies, I'm generalizing a bit, but the, the tone of those biographies tend to be, we're going to get this guy. We're going to tell the truth about this guy. You know, and I want to tell the truth too, of course, but I also felt like, you know, I wanted to remind the world of why we love this guy. You know, I wanted to interview all the dancers, all the choreographers, all the engineers, all the producers, the backup musicians, everybody I could find. And how did I do that? I mean, my method was, as in my my last book, was just to try to interview everyone I could find. And so what I would do is I would literally get compact discs and old records and go through the liner notes and then figure out how I could find each person all the way, you know, from the bassist on, on thriller to, you know, the, the second assistant engineer on dangerous. Um, and I would just try to, you know, LinkedIn is my friend, you know, I tried to find all these people online and I would contact them and, and many, many got back to me. Some were harder to find than others, but the book that I, I had in mind writing was sort of, if you're familiar with, um, Peter Goralnik's books on Elvis Presley, or um, one book that really inspired this project was a guy who I had the opportunity to meet recently because we're both graduates of the same college, um, R.J. Smith, who wrote The the One, which is just a fantastic biography of James Brown. Um, Robert Gordon wrote a great book on Muddy Waters, and, and these are the kinds of books that I wanted to write about Michael. Um, you know, I want to know the other stuff, too, as I'm sure you do about Michael. There, There's a lot more to his story than just music and dance and performance, of course. There's there's child molestation, and there's facial surgery, and there's all, all this different stuff that's more on the negative side of, of Michael. Um, but I wanted to sort of frame this the way I wish the movie about Ray Charles, Ray, had been. You know, that movie is primarily about drugs, I think. And there's this great scene in the movie where Jamie Foxx as Ray Charles is creating, I don't know if it really happened, but he's creating the song, What I Say, on the spot in the studio. You know, and he's leading his dancers and he's moving all the musicians around and he's got this incredible vision um, and, and spontaneity to be able to do that. Um, and the, that scene is like two minutes long and the rest is about drugs. And, and so I, maybe I'm in the minority. Maybe that's what moviegoers want to see. I, I, you know, who am I to say about, about public taste? But I wanted to reverse that. I wanted to say my book is about why, how all these songs came together, how all these dance steps and these performances came together. And you're going to get the other stuff too, but very much in that context of sort of why Michael Jackson was a genius. Um, let's see. Uh, I'll just give you a quick couple of examples and then, then I'll try to quickly move to questions. Um, I talked to a, some of the many people I talked to, um, a Motown assistant named Susie Aketa, who was an assistant to Barry Gordy in the sixties and wound up being kind of a creative liaison between Motown and the Jackson five. And she wound up kind of developing this, this personal bond with Michael. She was a little bit of a, if not a motherly figure, maybe an aunt kind of figure. Um, and she would help Michael in the studio, um, not so much with music because he didn't need that, but she would help with little details like when he sang on I Want You Back or those other great songs, 
his head would bob away from the microphone because he was dancing so much. And so it was Susie's job to hold his head in place in the studio. Things like that. Um, let's see. Um, I, I wrote about how Michael Michael's first kind of what I call his first holy crap dance move was not the moonwalk, but the robot. You know, the robot was was a move that came out of the Soul Train TV show. Um, and Michael learned it from the Soul Train dancers, and that's pretty well documented. But I, I added the detail because I interviewed um, Robert Shields from the mime duo Shields and Yarnell. I don't know if you guys remember them. They, they were very, very popular a long time ago. Um, and and uh, Shields told me about um, mime's influence on the robot and some of these other moves that Michael did. And and so so that was something that um, I mean Michael Michael you know they say geniuses the great people steal you know they appropriate and that's what Michael did he got these moves and and these music ideas from all different sources and then he just kind of figured out how to put them together into something that was completely brand new um, I was privy to I had a source leak me a box of cassette tapes and this is one of my favorite details of, of doing this book of researching this book and it turns out that michael was well known among friends and family um early in his life in in the 70s and and some of the 80s for recording almost everything he did he would record himself he would record phone conversations he would um he would sing or speak ideas into the tape that, to come back to later you know long before iphones obviously and um I was privy to a phone conversation, one of the very first phone conversations that Michael and Quincy Jones had um, after The Wiz. And and The Wiz was, of course, the movie that, that they worked on together. Michael played the scarecrow in it. And um, the famous story is that Quincy, who was doing the music for that movie, you know, went up to Michael and they joked around. And Michael, you know, didn't know how to pronounce Socrates. So Quincy set him straight. And that's how they kind of met. But later they had this phone conversation and Quincy is kind of a rambler. You know, he goes on and on and on. If you've ever heard him speak or be interviewed, he's, he's very charming and he just tells his whole story over and over and over again. And um, he was doing that with Michael and Michael was kind of being quiet. You know, he was just kind of going, mm-hmm, interesting. And at one point Michael actually went, woo, <laughs> which was great. I, that was my favorite part on the tape. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, it's mostly Quincy rambling and Michael listening. And at one point... Michael mentions kind of casually, oh, I hear songs in my head. And there's this pause. <laughs> and Quincy goes, uh, Michael, if you hear songs in your head, I can help you write those down. I can help you get those songs out of your head and into a studio and into an actual song. And I felt like that was the moment of that partnership. Like that was the moment of conception. I'm sure there were others. But I felt, you know, I was privy to that and I put that in the book. And, that, and those are the kinds of details that, that I wanted to, to show and, and translate to people um, who are fans of Michael Jackson. Um, let's see. Okay, so I'll just bring this to a conclusion. Um, you know, in the end, the more I researched Michael, the more I liked him. And I think he was a genius. And geniuses are weird. You know, that word weird comes up in the context of Michael all the time. You know, and, and at first it was very benign and sort of like eccentricities, you know, Michael in the hyperbaric chamber and Michael, you know, with the elephant man's bones. I mean, some of these stories were sort of things that he and his people kind of planted them, themselves in, in this P.T. Barnum kind of showmanship fashion. Um, and then, of course, it took on a more sinister tone, you know, because later he, he had some, some issues, you know, which, which we can get into. I'm sure you're familiar with them. 
But um, generally, you know, geniuses are weird in music. Elvis Presley was weird. Johnny Cash was weird. Ray Charles was weird. James Brown was weird. Keith Richards is still weird. Um, I like my pop megastars weird, but I also like them great. And, um, you know, I felt honored to have been on the phone with people who work with Michael, the Greg Fillin Gaineses, the Bill Bettrells, um, many others who told me what it was like to watch an idea come out of Michael's head and help him translate it to an instrument and then turn it into something like Billie Jean or Black or White. And um, that's that's what I hope people take from my book, and I hope you all like it. And thank you so much for coming. I'm I'm really pleased and honored. Um, I'd love to take questions if you have any. Yes, sir, Mr. Dedrick. <laughs> you mentioned all the books that have been written about Michael. The only one I've read, I read when it came out, was Moonwalk. Right. So in the course of your research, yeah. were there parts where you said, okay, he was exactly right about this? And were there parts where you said, no, I've got to call BS? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there was. I'm trying to think of examples off the top of my head. And, and Jay's referring to Michael's own autobiography, which was written in the 80s. And, um, you know, it's Michael's words, and he endorsed it, and he signed off on it, of course. And I have no doubt that, that it's, you know, mostly true, although some spin, perhaps. Um, but he did get – it was ghostwritten. And so I wound up talking to um, both Stephen Davis and Robert Hilburn, who were the journalists who, who work with him, and, and they had some interesting stuff to say. Um, I guess they're, they're – there were a few things that I had to call BS on a little bit from there. Um, Michael is pretty vague about the origins of the moonwalk in that book. You know, he talks about, um, he, he talks about sort of how it came from, I forget his exact wording. I'm probably going to get this wrong, but he said something like how it came from the black children of the world, something like that. Um, and, and mostly he sort of says that I kind he, you know, kind of made it up himself and I don't, that's not really totally true. There's much more to the story. Um, I talked to, there, there's two dancers in particular, actually three. Um, they were named Cooley and Casper. And they were dancers who had been on Soul Train and they were affiliated with another guy named Jeffrey Daniel. And um, Jeffrey Daniel was in a band called Shalimar, which I'm sure Jay remembers the band Shalimar because he knows everything about the 70s. <laughs> we'll get into that later. Um, and and they performed kind of one of the early versions of what sort of seemed like was the moonwalk, this this move called the backslide that I alluded to earlier. And this was, you know, earlier um, in, in the 80s. Like I, I think it was around 1980 when this performance happened. Um, and uh, uh, it was actually set to working day and night So so on the show. So obviously, eventually, it came around to Michael. And so Michael saw this eventually – and he reached out to these dancers, particularly Cooley and Casper, and he sort of brought them in and he said, teach this to me. And, you know, at the time, nobody called it the moonwalk. And it was just this dance called the backslide that was really old, you know, that made you look like you're walking forwards and backwards at the same time. And it was almost like a magic trick. And Michael kept saying, I can't get it. I can't get it. And Cooley was like, or, or Casper, who, whichever one it was, was like, that's, that's how it's supposed to happen. Like, at first you don't get it and then it clicks. And so, so, you know, Cooley told me he wished that Michael would have credited the more specific people he'd worked with. So that, that might be one answer to your question. I can think of others too. Any other questions? They can't all come from Jay. <laughs> Amy. Versus a 
Yeah. Um, my editor told me, and I had to change this, so hopefully it's consistent, but, uh, um, my editor told me when, you know, technically answering your question, um, you know, when you talk to previous sources, you say said past tense. And when you're talking to current sources that I'm talking to for the book that I got exclusively, you say says, you say present tense. So that's kind of the code. Um, do, do you want it? Well, well, but so, okay. So that's, that's great. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good question. Um, I mean, I'll be honest. Well, first of all, I had trouble with that because my previous book, um, if anyone's familiar with it, I was sort of setting my own course in a way. Like people know the story generally of of why the music business crashed because of the internet and MP3s and, and Napster and so forth. But for the most part, I was sort of setting my own um, my own path through that topic. This one, everybody knows the story of Michael Jackson, you know, and, and there's been so much written um, that I had a friend, a guy named Ron Doyle, who's a local writer in Denver, and I was kind of, you know, bemoaning this to him. There's so much information. And he gave me the metaphor of a fire hose. He was like, I don't know if this is the perfect metaphor, but it worked for me. You know, like there's a huge rush of water coming out of the fire hose of all this information. I just have to pick, you know, which pieces I wanted to use. And, and of course, like my exclusive stuff was the stuff that took precedent, you know, and that, that stuff rang in my head and, and, and I would, I would use that. And if I had a whole to fill, you know, if there was something like, for example, I'll, I, you know, I, I pinned down some details about when the nose jobs were and why and so forth. But really, J. Randy Tarbarelli was the, the first source to really pin that stuff down. And he had impeccable sources on that. So I was able to say, okay, well, I have a couple people who, you know, I was constantly comparing my chronology with others chronologies. You know, and so so I would say, well, okay, I got this information. This person said it was 1979. That matches up with Tarbarelli or whoever else. And, you know, the, of course, the challenge is you have to scrupulously cite all that stuff, which, which I did. So, yeah. There's Mike. Hey, Mike. <laughs> Any other questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I think Quincy Jones was super important um, for many, many reasons. I mean, inc- including that he was kind of a father figure to Michael, you know, and he he was someone. I think of Quincy sort of like a Phil Jackson figure, you know, the coach of the the Lakers and the Chicago Bulls. He's not like a a hardcore college coach who's drilling his players all the time. He's someone who says, "Well, you guys are men. You're talented. You know, I just I I just have to put point you in the right direction." And kind of figure out who you all are. And, and that's kind of the, the type of coach that Quincy was in the studio. Um, Michael was sort of the types of songs that he was writing on his own were in the mold before he met Quincy were in the mold of sort of shake your body down to the ground. So I don't know if you guys are probably familiar with that song somewhat. Um, and, and that is a groove song. And, and Michael would perform, he would collaborate with Greg Fillingaines and others in the studio. And he would just create this groove and just let it roll, let it roll, let it roll. And I think that's kind of the direction he was going in. Quincy, I think, helped him um, focus those songs into more compact pop songs. You know, Quincy also had Rod Temperton, who wrote Thriller and who wrote Off the Wall and many other great, great Michael Jackson songs. So you had this sort of like perhaps a rivalry going in the studio. You had Michael bringing his own songs and you had Rod kind of who had much more experience bringing his songs in and they both had a slightly different feel. 
Um, so without Quincy, I, I feel like it, it's a little bit of a, you know, it's too hypothetical to answer completely, but um, I feel like Michael might have gone more in that direction, like longer stretched out groove songs, and it might have taken him a little longer to get to sort of Billie Jean. On the other hand, Michael was also very influenced by Motown, you know, and Motown had those compact pop songs also. And so he was he was certainly open to, to doing that kind of music more. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I I was surprised. I was surprised at how much I liked him. <laughs> you know, I I I wasn't sure what to expect. You know, and and um, I mean, I I I'm always trying to look for the humor. And and everybody always said, oh, Michael, when he was in the Jackson Five, he was a jokester. You know, he pulled pulled pranks on people. And so I, w- I really enjoyed talking to people about that. And I was surprised at, at the details people would give me, like when he was flying on a plane um, with the Jackson 5 to a performance or something, it was Michael who would run down the aisle, whacking everybody on the head as he walked down the aisle and people would chase him around. And, you know, he was the guy that, uh, you know, when he was touring in the tour bus, somebody would come in with, with new glasses and he would say, oh my God, you got microscopes on, you know. And and so I, I was I was surprised at how kind of regular guy funny sense of humor he had early in life, and even later when he got very eccentric and and very reclusive and and t- his story turned into the story that we all know and a little bit sad he still had that in him he could he could bond with people in that regular guy way, so yeah, yes sir. I, I wish I had. No, I mean, I started this book in 2012. Um, and, and so by that point, he had been he had passed away for three years. Um, and during in my career, no, I mean, I never had the opportunity to interview him. Um, I've been writing my first ever story for Rolling Stone was um, 1996. Um, and I wrote about uh, Don Henley and Walden Woods. Um, it was it was uh, do you remember that one, Jay? Yeah. <laughs> uh, it was, they sent me, it was actually kind of like a, a controversial story about Henley. Henley was doing all this um, charity work to pr- preserve Henry Thoreau's beloved Walden Pond and Walden Woods. And um, there were some preservationists who believed literally in Thoreau's, you know, simplify philosophy. And they were mad that all these giant rock star concerts were coming in all the time. So I wrote about, but um Long story about Rolling Stone. My editor got fired, and then I wound up not being in the magazine for several years. But then I picked it back up again, 2002, and I've been writing regularly for them, mostly about the music business. And in fact, um, answer a different question. Um, my last book, the whole first chapter is is about Michael Jackson. The it, it's about the music business, but I go way back in time. Um, I mean, my book's really about how Napster and the internet kind of destroyed the record industry. But I go farther back in time and I talk about 1979 when the industry first crashed. It was the previous crash of the record business. Well, what saved the record business? Three things, MTV, the adoption of CDs, and the Thriller album, which was the rising tide that lifted all the boats in, in, the, in the record industry. And so I wound up doing a lot of work on that. I wound up talking to Frank DeLeo, Michael's manager, several times and, and a bunch of other people in his camp. And and that was sort of what led me into kind of I'm interested in this kind of a subject. So would you 
say that that is the type of feedback that you're getting um, from people that have read the book or, or that have actually um, given you their time for the interview? What type of feedback are you getting? I mean, the book's been the book's been out three weeks right. yesterday, and and so. Yeah, it's just trickling in. Yeah, I mean, yeah, the feedback has been, I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm not going to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, I, the reviews have been very nice, and, and I'm gratified by them. Um, and, you know, the, the commentary online is, has been pretty good so far. So, yeah, knock on wood. <laughs> it depends. Um, I mean, some of the interviews I did were 10 minutes long, and some of them I did were part one, part two, part three, part four, and were hours. Um, you know, I, I, there are people that I visited in person and I saw several times this woman from Motown that I mentioned earlier, Susie Aketa, um, she was exacting and she wanted me to sort of verify every bit of information that she told me. And so I probably talked to her 10 or 15 times on the phone. You know, she didn't do email. She, she's not, she's not a, a modern woman in that sense. Um, and so, so it was a lot of sort of like, you know, I, I got your message and you got that wrong, you know? And so, so, um, but I, I loved talking to her. That was one of, one of my favorite sources, but so, you know, Ronnie Rancifer, who was the keyboardist for the Jackson five, the original Jackson five. Um, I, I flew to, I had a ve- the most surreal moment of researching the book was when, so I didn't even know if Ronnie was alive. You know, and, and I found online that he's alive and I was like, this is great. I got to go find him. And somehow I, I, he plays, or at least he did in 2012, he played with a, a cover, a rock cover band called the shut up and drive band out of Northwest Indiana. He's still in Hammond, Indiana after all these years, good band, you know, but, but a club band, you know, a, a cover band. And, um, and I went on Halloween night to their performance 2012, um, at the American Legion hall in Hobart, Indiana. And it was sort of like going to a show and, and finding out that, like, Miles Davis is in the band, you know. And Ronnie's really good, really good, you know. And I, I was telling him about, like, I play piano, and he was giving me some tips, and they were way over my head. Um, but, you know, I wound up interviewing Ronnie several times as well. So One final question. Sure. Are you able to interview any of the Soul Train dancers, such as Jeffrey Daniels and Joey Watley and um, I interviewed, yes, I interviewed some, um, Demita, Joe Freeman, and I talked at length. I did, I don't know, I talked to her for an hour or two. Um, Jeffrey Daniel did not return inquiries, but I did talk to Cooley. I did talk to, um, Cooley Jackson. So. I was living in LA at the time when all that evolved. Ah. So I'm familiar with a lot of them before they became. Yeah. I got really into Soul Train with this. I, I, yeah, I mean, I got, I watched all these performances and stuff and, and I'd seen some, you know, earlier, but, but I got really deep into it. And the, the history and the heritage of that show was super important, not just for Michael, but obviously the entire history of dance, the entire history of, of African-American music, you know, and, and, um, and the really, I mean, if I had to categorize my favorite sources for the book, the sources that were the most insightful consistently were dancers dancers and choreographers. And, and it's interesting. I mean, I didn't expect that. And, and the reason is because I think in part, because number one, um, they're technical, you know, they're, they don't, you know, they don't talk about music the same way a musician does. They talk about it in terms of steps and in terms of, yeah, how do I do this? How do I put this together? And that really meshed with what I wanted to ask them. So, you know, there were people, I spent a long time sort of saying, 
did the robot lead to the moonwalk? You know, I asked a lot of people that question and a lot of different opinions about that. I, I wound up talking to Tony Basil, you know, who's the great rock and roll choreographer. She didn't work with Michael, but, but she, um, you know, obviously knew his steps and knew his moves. There's a great dance professor. Um, at the time he was out at the university of Memphis that I found when I was working on the proposal named Mark Allen Davis. And, um, I'm sure you've never heard of him, but, but he was super, super helpful. And, um, you know, when I was working on the proposal, I wasn't quite sure if I could get anyone. Like I was still in sort of like, I don't have a book deal. I'm doing all this for free. You know, what, what, I don't know where this is going to go. I need some experts to help me out. And Mark and I, he was so kind and generous with his time. And we wound up like watching over the phone, the same Michael YouTube videos together and like, you know, pause it there. That is so great. Rewind it. Go back to 222, you know, and we had, we had a lot of fun doing that. And he was very influential in some of the theories I have in the book. Yeah. People. Yeah. No, good question. I mean, of course, there's different phases of his career to answer that question. So, like when he was a, yeah. <laughs> when he was a big star, and I mean, yeah. The the answer to the question is most people liked working with him. Um, that that's my sense. I mean, nobody, nobody kind of said, Oh, you know, Michael was like James Brown and he snapped his fingers and penalized me and charged me money or, you know, anything like that. It was more like people enjoy working with him. I think as his career evolved, he became more distant from people. So it's pretty well known in his later years that like in his early years, all the way up really through the dangerous tour, um, through the prep for the dangerous tour, Michael was right in there. I mean, even when he was the biggest star of the world, he was in there doing the moves with the dancers, you know, every day working hours and hours. And then at a certain point he started to put in, and this is the part that's well known. He would, he would bring in sort of like stand-ins and then they would do the moves with the dancers and then they would come home and Michael and the dancer would work on that move together, you know? And in fact, that kind of peaked with, um, the scream video, you know, um, Michael and Janet, I have some, some stuff in the book about that. They didn't always see eye to eye on the scream video. Michael was very much in sort of, I'm the big rock star mode. And Janet was the little sister. And so she had choreographers that she was working with and they, I talked to them and they, they expressed some frustration with how Michael treated them and how they, how he treated Janet. So, um, you know, they're, yeah, I'm sorry. Yes. Yeah. Another question. Yeah. A lot. <laughs> I mean, it's an unauthorized book. I did not talk to the Jackson family. Um, and so that, that would probably be the number one answer to your question. Um, Quincy Jones would be another. He, he was someone that I worked really, really hard to get. And uh, I, if, do we have a tiny bit more time, Len? Or, or, okay. Uh, can I tell you the story about how close, the closest I got to the Jacksons? Um, okay. So I'd been calling and, inter, you know, calling the managers and, Every per- and, and each Jackson has his or her own set of people that you have to go through. So we're talking like dozens and dozens of calls and emails and on and on and on. I wasn't really getting anywhere. And finally, I just thought, 
There was one manager that worked with the four Jacksons who are currently on tour and have been for a few years on the Unity tour, um, the the four brothers. And I kind of got a little bit like the, his, the manager's publicist seemed open. So what I decided to do was fly to a Jackson's show. And the one I picked was Biloxi, Mississippi um, at the Beau Rivage Casino. And so, which was, and it was a great show. I, I don't mean to downplay it in any way. It was, it was really, really nice show. They're doing, they're doing pretty good out there. Um, and at the end, I just thought, you know what I'll do? I mean, I didn't talk to anyone beforehand. I'm just going to hang around. I'm going to hang around sort of the side door and see if I can, you know, Hey, can I talk to the, ma- do, you know, Mr. Security guard, excuse me. Can, can I talk to the manager? You know, um, that didn't work out and nobody showed up and I waited and waited. And finally I was like, I'll just go out the back door. I'll go out the back door and this won't surprise anyone who knows me. Um, there's a parking garage in the back of this casino and I get immediately lost and I'm in the parking garage. The door goes click behind me and it's locked and I'm trapped in this parking garage in the middle of Biloxi, Mississippi. And, um, and so I, there was no one around. It was this dead. It was almost like a horror movie or something. Um, and finally I see a casino dealer taking a break smoking a cigarette in the parking garage. And so I went up to him and I said, sir, I'm lost. Can you help me get back in the casino? And he was super friendly, super nice. He was like, yeah, come on in. He unlocks the door. We go up a stairway, down a stairway, through a hall, blah, 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 take a left. There's the Jacksons in the hallway, all four of them with their wives and girlfriends carrying their bags. They're all dressed in black. And the great detail that I, that pretty much aside from this story, the great detail that I could use in my book is they were all harmonizing together on Hold On, I'm Coming by Sam and Dave. And that was a great moment to witness. But I admit that, and I'm embarrassed about this, that I sort of lost my all my journalistic instincts at this point. Like I'm in a hallway in the Jacksons, and they're all walking towards an elevator. Is that Michael? Is someone playing Michael over there? <laughs> um, they're all walking in this hallway towards an elevator, and I have like eight seconds to get to them. And I'm thinking, what should I do? What should I do? I, I, had, I was at a complete loss. And then they get in the elevator, and they turn around, and they face me. And they're all sta- – like all the Jacksons are standing like this and I'm in the hallway and as the doors – I mean literally as the doors close, I'm like, no! So, so that, was, that was the closest I got. <laughs> so yes, Len. Um, I think that my family would kill me if if I started another three year project with four hundred and fifty interviews. <laughs> That's I, I have pitched some books and they're not happy about that. Uh, I I can't really say I can't say my ideas, but I have pitched pitched some ideas to my agent, um, and he liked a couple of them, didn't like a couple others. Uh, you know, uh, well. I pitched yes. Um, the one of the ones he didn't like, I suppose I can say this. Um, I pitched a biography of uh, Haile Selassie, the uh, you know the emperor of Ethiopia who became a Rastafarian icon, and I thought that would be like the best biography. So much fun because you start out with like you know Mussolini and World War II and all this stuff, and then you get all the way up to like these these Rasta men who have, have taken him as a god. You know, I would th- I thought that would be a great book, but my agent was like, that's a bit of a stretch, you know, <laughs> which he's probably right. Um, but that, I, yeah, I mean, the answer to your question is, um, I'm really, I, I, maybe this is a little bit ego overblown, but I really love the books by Eric Larson, you know, and those kind of like really detailed, um, narrative nonfiction books, you know, that, that's the kind of stuff that, that I, I think I'd like to take a crack at, you know, um, where, where you interview so many people and do so much document and history research and look at old letters and go to old libraries, 
um, and, and sort of recreate a story based on that. The question is coming up with an idea. That guy has so many good ideas and I, my ideas are not nearly as good as his. So that, that would be the direction I'd love to go in and with the music kind of tinge to it. So yeah. Anyone else? These are great questions. Amy. Yeah. What's one of your favorite anecdotes or interviews that ended up on the in the in the trash box? In the cutting room floor. Yeah, <laughs> oh, good question. Um well, I mean, I'm sorry to repeat. This is a little bit off the top of my head. I'll try to come up with a better answer for you later. Um, but just to go back to the Ronnie Rancifer in Hobart, Indiana story, I had like six pages on that. And my editor, and I, and I knew it was wrong when I wrote it because I just loved writing it. Like it was so much fun to write about. Like there were, there were people at that Halloween party who were dressed as the black eyed peas, but they had like their, they had black eyes and they had P, the letter P all over that. It was just like the most hilarious thing. And, and, um, so I wrote a whole section on that and I knew what my editor would say when I wrote it, which was, this really isn't about Michael Jackson. You know, <laughs> this is about Ronnie Rancifer and it's not even really about him, you know? <laughs> um, so, so that I would, that wounded me. Like I was like, I loved writing about that so much, but at least I, I understood. I'm, you know, I wrote a lot about Gary. I, I don't, some of you know this here. I know Chuck knows this. Um, I used to work in Gary, Indiana. I used to be a reporter for the Post Tribune. Um, and Jay knows this too, because Jay is my former colleague at the Daily Camera in Boulder. And, um, I know I'm digressing here, but, uh, there was a period in my career where I wanted to move on from Boulder and I tried to get a job and the only job I could get was in Gary. So I actually moved from Boulder to Gary, um, which was an interesting transition for, for a person. Um, and, and so, but I, I spent a year and this is, it's a long story, but I, I spent a year at the Post Tribune kind of being a roving features writer and driving around town and interviewing people. I wrote about like stuff that doesn't happen in Boulder, like truck stop prostitution and, you know, mob style, triple homicides and various things like that. And it was, it was actually kind of a cool year, but I knew the lay of the land. Like I, I really knew that region well. And I, I visited there again in 2012 for the first time since I worked there in like 1995. And, um, you know, I, I got really into the whole Gary aspect of this. And a lot of that got cut. Um, <laughs> again, for the, you know, like I'm passionate about certain things, perhaps more than, you know, most Michael Jackson fans would be passionate about certain things. So I was sad about that. But on the other hand, I think my editor did a really good job of sort of taking some of like the mass stuff that I wrote and kind of compacting it. You know, it it gives the book a little bit more of like a, a dense feel that, that I like. I th I'm, I'm really pleased that he could do it that way. These are good questions. I, I, let's go all night, man. Two in the morning. <laughs> Mike and Chuck haven't asked me about my jump shot yet. It's, it's very mediocre. <laughs> yeah, Chuck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think from the very beginning, um, I, I mean, I think Michael was a genius in three ways. You know, he was as a singer, he was a genius because he had this like, as you all know, very intimately, he had this innate sense of rhythm 
you know, and the way he places his breaths and the phrasing and the scat singing and the Bobby McFerrin type mannerisms that he has are all so intuitive, you know, and, and so there's that. And then there's um, the songwriting. Um, and, and I mean, when you really think about the songs that Michael wrote, Billie Jean and Don't Stop Till You Get Enough and, and Want to Be Starting so- on and on and on and on, that's, that's a body of work. I mean, just the songs that Michael wrote. Um, but, the, I mean, what I got right away was the dance, and the dan- and and um, early on when I was just researching the proposal, um, I realized that Michael had this perfect pitch for dance. You know, like he could see someone else do a complicated move, even at like five, six years old, and the next day he could come back and figure it out. And he talks about this in, in his biography, and other people, you know, confirm that to me as well. Um, and and the dancers that I talked to, I'm not a dancer. My wife knows this, and uh, and and so so I had to sort of rely on other experts to kind of help me with this this whole idea. And and I, yeah, they confirm that that's pretty rare thing. You know, that, that, that I think that that definitely goes in the genius category. And, and then it, I'll just expand on that briefly, which is that, you know, one of the things that I think doesn't get talked about Michael enough is that is the mentorships that he had, like the, the informal mentorships, I should say. Like, for example, when he was a seven, eight, nine year old um, lead singer of the Jackson Five, he was on the Chitlin circuit, you know, and he was going around to all these theaters and who else was performing there? James Brown, Jackie Wilson, The Temptations, you know, on and on down the line, some of the best dancers in American music history. And here's a little kid who has perfect pitch for dance, and he stands on the side of the stage every night watching James Brown or whoever, and then talking to them or somebody who works with them on dance and saying, can you teach me that? Can you teach me that? And he had a work ethic. So so all that stuff to me, just in that one category, you know, suggests the word genius. Yeah. Okay. One more question. We're saying this is great. You guys are. I love this. Uh, where did you get your inspiration for the cover? Was it your um, vision, or was it your editors, or was it a? Um... It was definitely a collaboration. Um, you know, I'm I'm bad with covers and titles. Uh, Appetite for Self Destruction. My last book was was an editor. I'll, I'll admit it to everybody. My editor came up with that. Um, I you know. My, I was thinking about this as I went, obviously. What am I going to call this? Because I, I didn't really have an idea at the beginning. And um, all the Michael Jackson books, almost to a book, it's all like some pun on some Michael. And, and I don't mean to say that in a snobby way, but there, there, it's all like, you know, Michael Jackson, King of Pop, or some song title that they alter slightly, kind of like Appetite for Self-Destruction. And, uh, um, and I just felt like I wanted, and, and they all have a picture of him on the cover, like in action, you know? And I just felt like, I want, I liked MJ because every source that I talked to referred to him as MJ, first of all. And that just rang true to me. And there was some discussion, would people think it's a book about Michael Jordan, you know, or Montel Jordan, you know, <laughs> I don't know. Um, maybe, maybe that's my next project, but, um, you know, uh, so, but, but we finally kind of agreed that MJ had a certain like regal quality to it. Like it's succinct. It shows that this guy is is important. Like you don't, we already know about him. We don't need to see another picture of what he does. We know what that is. And and then as far as the design goes, that was all the book company. And I just absolutely love this little crown. Like, thank you, thank you. I, I appreciate your saying that. They did a fantastic job. I, I think if I can go on about this little crown for a second, I, I just think it like it 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 shows like regality as well as having like a little sense of humor, you know, like a little bit, which, which I see as the quality in Michael that I liked one of the qualities I liked the most. So 
thank you all for coming. I enjoyed this very much, and I'm, I'm really gratified that uh, some old friends and, and a lot of people could be here. So I appreciate it. Thank you. And thanks to Tatter Cover and Len. <laughs> That's all for tonight's Author on Tour. I'm Darren Foden. We have been podcasting live from the Tattered Cover Bookstore in Denver, Colorado. Stay pod-tuned in the coming weeks as we podcast Authors on Tour.